when times are good, you still got to pretend times are tough. Now, a lot of folks are being like, okay, I need to start a marketing campaign, or now I got to go build this up. And I don't want to say it's too late because there's no better time to start than yesterday. But point being is, is you got to be aware of what things are going on in the market. Are you ready to transform your life? This is a no-nonsense show helping immigrants like you create generational wealth, even while working full-time. Get ready to take notes. Here's your host, Socket Jane. Welcome back, my Great to Wealth listeners. Today, we're going to be talking to Jason Balin. Jason, how are you, buddy? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm good. No, we're excited to have you here because when I looked at your profile, you know what excited me about the most about your stuff is capital markets are in turmoil right now. When we look at the public capital markets, and I know you do hard money lending, which is really private investors' money that's being invested. So I thought it'd be given the economy where it is, it'd be good for so to have someone like you on, because you probably are seeing a lot change for you and very fast. And would be great to get some insights from you. So thank you again for taking the time and meeting us, buddy. We're Absolutely. excited to have you. Absolutely. Thank you. Awesome. So Jason, I think with the first question we always start with is, our show is Migrate to Wealth. Very interested in your migration journey into wealth, but we'll start with what does wealth mean to you? Give us some insights into your migration into wealth. Sure. Well, I think wealth and success, in my mind, kind of are an overlapping word. And I think it can mean whatever you want it to be, right? Is it financial? Is it freedom? Is it luxury to do what you choose? Is it giving? You can kind of figure out internally what you want. And I think it is a hard question to answer. And I think it really depends on what everybody thinks. To me, wealth is kind of a combination of passive living related to my life kind of just runs itself in whatever direction it takes to. It starts with passive income with a certain amount of money that in essence will just come if you do any work or if you don't do any work, if you're right. asleep or you're awake, right? So right. I think the financial element is a big part of it. So it starts with passive income. And I think that's important to get to that part. And then after you have passive income, in essence, you have a lifestyle that you choose, that you want to do, however you see that yeah. to be. And Justin, that's great. That's great insight, right? Because that's really what wealth means to us is really more holistic. Now, has your definition of wealth evolved or were you pretty clear at the beginning of what wealth meant to you? It's definitely evolved. Everything has evolved. And the funny thing is, is I had a business coach, my business partner, Chris Hatton, and I had a joint business coach early on in our career. And typically when you have a business coach, they hold you accountable. They're very good about determining accountability and goal setting and dreams. And we put on paper, and I like sharing this story because I think this is a good learning tool for a lot of people. We were always like, well, if our lending company, Hard Money Bankers, could just get to this, then we'd be here. If we could just get to this, just get to this, just get to this. And we were able to accomplish our three-year goal, or our 10-year goal, sorry, in three years. And it was very nice. eye-opening because that was, was the first like big, just what we thought was a ridiculous goal. Right. 10-year goal. Like He's like, think big, dream, something you couldn't even imagine. And we were able to accomplish it in three years. And I think that that helped me kind of evolve and think and really put stuff in perspective of like, wow, like if you really work backwards from age 100. Correct. Correct. Like the amount of stuff you can accomplish is just something you can never imagine. Isn't that interesting? Just, but I'm pretty sure now looking back, it makes sense now. Of course, life always makes sense looking back. Uh, what you thought was going to be the end goal, it could be the dollar amount, it could be the growth, whatever that amount was at that time, number at that time, but it was a number. But when you reach that number, however ridiculous and however time it took you to get there, less or more, 
And you'd imagine that's really not the end goal though, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, think about one year from now, how long one year is, or think 10 yeah. years from now, think about yeah. like in the next decade of your life. Now think about last year, last year, yeah. was yesterday. I mean, right. COVID was three full years ago, but it seemed like recent, like everything seems very slow when you're progressing. But then when you look back it time flew, your kids increase in age very, very, very quickly. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm all, my whole motto has always been kind of slow and steady wins the race. And that's what we try to do. We get up every day and we try to be a little bit more productive. And yeah. next thing you know, that little block and tackle, those few things you do every day turns into something major. I think that's a key nugget right there, right? Because most people I think would be paralyzed and thinking there's so much to do. And I go back to this old adage, how do you eat the elephant one piece at a time, right? Really one bite at a time, because you can't read the entire elephant. You can't create the company where the kind of work right. you're doing right now, the kind of impact you're doing. I think when you were starting out, it seemed pretty daunting. It, it probably was. still is where you want to go. Is it still right? is daunting. <laughs> yeah, it is still daunting. I'm like, this is a lot of commitment, a lot of work, a lot of life, a lot of life's at stake before it was just yours. So now help us understand, Jason, why did you pick this line of work? What made you, because growing up, you probably didn't even know what hard lending is. So it's not like you had this dream to become a hard money lender. Nope, not at all. I did have a dream to be rich, but again, yeah. determine what the word rich means, right? Correct. Like, like Correct. I, didn't know, I didn't know what that meant. It just meant like, hey, I could buy whatever I wanted to buy whenever I wanted to buy. Right. That's kind of what I had in my head. So early 2000s, when I graduated college, I got into real estate. You know, I never really had a true W-2 job. It was all 1099 sales jobs, yeah. things like that. And I became a real estate agent and, you know, I learned a lot. And just like anything else, you started, I'm like, oh, this is the best job ever. You know, I made a big commission check and yeah. I liked it. I didn't love it. Then we started flipping houses and buying rental properties and things like that. And, oh, this is the best thing ever. Why doesn't everybody do this? And then right. I was like, ah, oh, this is a lot of work. And originally got into private lending and hard money lending because just like a very similar story to a lot of hard money lenders is they were flipping properties themselves and they were borrowing money from another lender or another private lender. Mm -hmm. And they were like, man, the lending side seems a lot easier than the flipping side. And right. one of the deals that we did, we worked on that darn thing for six months and put our blood, sweat and tears in it. Didn't make all that much money on that flip. And we're like, mm. this hard money lender made 30 grand off us between the <laughs> right. points and interest rate. He didn't have to do anything except put up the money once. So that was really attractive to us. And we liked kind of the financial side. I had a little background in mortgage lending, mortgage brokers, mortgage banking mm -hmm. as well. But we just felt that was kind of a good business model for my partner, Chris and I, right. at the time. We actually thought we were going to go into the mortgage industry and start our own mortgage company. And that was like right at 07, which would have been the worst time to ever Oof. start a, a mortgage yeah. company. So in hindsight, but we got a little bit lucky. I think we started the right business for our personality types. And we even started at the right time. You know, we started kind of right around the crash and right. there was no liquidity and there was no capital out there. The hardest part was raising private capital and everything happens for a reason. And it worked out because if we could raise private capital from capital investors, worst time, you could do it in any market. You can do it in a market. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. So just help us understand, I think for our listeners benefit, right? What is hard money lending? Sure. So... Don't get fooled by the term hard. People hear the word hard and they think, is it hard to get money or is it like a loan shark? The word hard just means a hard asset. We're lending against a hard asset, meaning real estate. So we put mm -hmm. loans against real estate. And in essence, we lend to real estate investors that are buying investment residential properties. They could be fixing and flipping it 
fix and flipping them. They could be doing rental properties. We also lend to commercial property owners where maybe they own an office or an apartment or a retail space and they need private capital for that. And one might think, well, why not just go to a bank? And you could. A bank is a good alternative. But the private capital markets are just more flexible and they're easier and they're more collateral-based. And that's not to say that the borrowers and the clients that we lend to aren't sophisticated. They are sophisticated. They have good credit. They have potentially good financials and other things, but they just don't want to deal with the bank. I mean, right now, I'll just give you an example. So let's say you own a property worth $1 million and the bank has a requirement that you have to file your last two years of tax returns and you have to have a minimum 680 credit score. Correct. Let's say you have like a 675 credit score. What's the difference between 675 and 680? Nothing, right? Nothing. And you want a loan of $100,000 on a $1 million building. And this is a real life situation that we lent on. (laughs) I'm using a real life situation. And the potential client was waiting on some K-1s from some other businesses that he wasn't involved in. In essence, he couldn't didn't have his tax returns up to date and his credit score was whatever, mid 600s, right? Mm-hmm. And whatever the requirement was, I don't know at that time. He had free and clear building worth a million bucks and he only right. needed $100,000 to invest in this other property he was buying in. We gave him a loan of $100,000 and our terms are obviously higher than banks. They're 1299 rate and three points. So someone might sound seem like that sticker shock that's very high. Yeah. And it might have been high in retrospect over the last seven, eight, 10 years. But guess what? The rates across the board have been going up. 80% in, in, right in, now. Yeah, yeah, in general. But more importantly, most sophisticated real estate investors and developers, they look at the cost of capital is important, but it's also the opportunity costs. You're not going to miss out on a deal because the capital cost a few extra right. percent or a few right. extra thousand dollars. And most hard money lenders, including ourselves, lend short term. So you're really in and out. So yes, it might end up being 16% annualized between the points and the interest rate and the things like that. But if you only need the capital for a few months to get in and out of a project, yeah, it doesn't end up being as scary or expensive as one might think. And you might think, hey, this is just a sales pitch because you're a hard money lender <laughs> and you want to charge high interest rates. But you have to look at the whole overall project costs. It's more reasonable when you look at it on paper than I think one might think. So I agree with that. I've used hard money in the past. Mm. So that always makes sense, right? Kind of like there's always a capital need and banks or the conventional banks may not always be the right solution. Now, it could be the right solution. It's going to be a cheaper yeah. solution for sure. But yep. it comes at the price of waiting and the hassle of if you're doing fast turn flipping, That's right. you don't have 90 days to wait for the <laughs> banks to give you the loan. You just don't. And if you do, the holding cost is too high, then your profits, you're you're running into your... And if you do, you probably don't have a distressed seller or a seller. You're probably not even getting a great deal on this deal. Most of of the clients we work with are buying properties at auction. They're buying properties from distressed sellers that might be losing their properties at foreclosure sales. Mm -hmm. Like Time is of the essence. They have to move quick. Our average loan has to close in about a week. They have to move quick. So that's part of it. So you don't have that option of getting bank money. But most real estate investors and commercial property owners that we work with, they're very bankable. They have home equity lines of credit, although mm. those things aren't although those things aren't cheap anymore. You know, yeah. those were four percent. They're they not, to, man. They're like eight, eight and a half. Yeah. Depending on they're, where they're, you got it yeah, from. They're expensive, but they have options. But you just use hard money or private capital as just another funding source. And right. anyone right. that owns enough real estate or businesses 
I think they can appreciate the fact and they know they've been in that situation where it's, hey, in this deal, I'm going to use a bank because I have 45 days to close. This deal, I'm going to use my own cash. This deal, I'm going to use a hard money lender. This deal, I'm going to use my friend's IRA. So it's good to just have lots of different... Another source of capital. Doesn't mean it's going to fit everyone's need every single time. No doubt. It's just a different source of capital. So now help me understand one thing, Jason, where the market is right now with real estate, where what's going on in the market, who is looking to deploy capital fast? And I'll give you some of the context of why the where this question is coming from, because sure. we've covered we've covered in previous episodes as well, the flipping model, right? Where you're basically buying a distressed asset and you're adding a value and then you are selling it to either an investor or a retail buyer, whoever, right? We're seeing a slowdown in that model right now because the values are compressed. So they are not the guys who or gals who may be looking for hard money lending on scale. Given where we are in the market, who are you lending to now? So I think the answer is everyone, but not one asset class or one particular clientele is at scale, right? But it's everybody on a broad level. So yes, the real estate investor that was fixing and flipping 100 properties a year is not doing that anymore. Mm -hmm. If they can get their hands out on 20 of them, they're doing that, right? right? A lot of this goes back to the institutional capital that was in this space over the last six or seven years. It was cheaper Mm -hmm. capital. It was Wall Street money. And they had to deploy billions and billions of dollars. Like yeah. that's not really my competition. Yeah. And that's also not really like the local hard money, private capital guys competition either. That's just a different game, right? But a lot of that is dried up. So the sophisticated real estate investors that were sending 10 deals a month and were doing lots of scaled deals or doing lots of deals on scale, they were going that institutional route because it was just cheaper capital. Right. It was easier to do that. So that capital, not that it's completely dried up, but a lot of it is dried up. But there's still room and there's still a lot of demand for private capital between the fix and flippers. If you need to get a buy and hold, there's good institutional and bank capital available for the renting side of it, like buy to rent, the rental 30 products, stuff like that. That's still available. There's a need for that in this market, but there's not all that much capital backing for the front end of that where you have to buy a distressed property and you have to renovate it before you can lease it up. Right After it's right. leased up, you right. can get a right. coverage loan. That's easy. We do a lot of creative loans on small balance commercial buildings. There's always been a lot of demand for small balance commercial properties that banks and institutional capital just never really got their head around. So we're doing a deal, free and clear asset, really good asset on a retail spot in Washington, DC right now, where they operate their business out of it. And they have a local bank. They had a five-year loan on it. The loan is due and they won't renew it. And The reason they won't renew it is not because the financials aren't good, not because it doesn't cover the debt service. They're renewing it because there's a lot going on behind the scenes that a lot of folks don't see related to the leveraging. So whoever their capital backing is behind them, because everybody has capital backing, every single one, no matter what. The bank, yes, they're lending out their own money, and then they're using that note as collateral for another institution behind them. Definitely. And it goes down the road forever. So. What's happening is they're saying, okay, well, we need our everybody down the lines asking for their capital back. Yeah. So they can't extend that loan even if they want to extend that loan. Sure. So that gives us the ability to come in and help out. And unfortunately for the borrower, the rate's going to be higher than they currently have. But in this particular deal, they're selling the asset anyways. They just need to get out of it. But we do a lot of small balance commercial properties on a lot of different scenarios, retail, office, go try to get a bank to give you a loan on a vacant professional office right now. That's just not not happening. happening. And it's not like 
you might say, well, that's too risky. Why would you do that? Well, there's always a number that makes sense. Correct. We did a loan. It was 18 units and they bought it for 1.5. It's not like I'm giving them 1.5 million. I think they brought 60% down or something like that. Right. So we gave them a loan of 550 maybe on a 1.5 purchase. So that was our comfort level of where we were at in that particular deal. Yeah. And to them, they wanted to pay cash. They were originally going to pay cash, the client, but they said, you know what? I'd rather not utilize all my cash. I'd rather just get a short-term loan instead. Of course. So I didn't have to use all my cash. So there's a lot of unique situations. And I think I know where your question is going. And at scale, I don't know the answer. (laughs) I don't know where everybody's going at scale, but I know for our... Maybe you think this is big. Maybe you think this is little, but we deploy about $50 million a year. That's a pretty good number. Yeah. Locally in our markets, there's enough volume and plenty of volume for us because we can be creative to figure out what works. You said your turn is usually about three to four months. Did I hear you? Well, I mean, they're year loans, but they're one year loans. But the fix and flippers, you know, as if you've ever fixed and flipped a house, Mm -hmm. it takes you a year (laughs) to do. You're just going to get eaten up with carrying costs. Correct. So the fix and flippers on the smaller size projects, they try to get out of three or four months. And the bigger ones, like example, in like Washington, D.C., the permitting process is a nightmare. So it takes forever. But yeah. on average, a lot of these guys and gals can get out in a few months. Got it. So Jason, where do you see right now? Are you nervous? Because you're, you're in oh, the, the market of the capital market business, right? At the private level versus the institutional level or the public market. Where do you see it going right now? Because if you hear the main media stream news, yeah, it's fear-inducing, right? Then we're talking about rates. People are worried about rates at 8%. We're here talking about rates even higher than that, which has been normal for you guys and the investors. So sure. how do you help us make some sense out of it? So when you say like, am I scared? Like it depends on like what part of my scared being on, because yeah. like for our business, it's actually a good thing. There's not a lot of liquidity out there. So I think in general for like the average, let's just say the average investor, they can be a real estate investor. They can be an investor in general. I mean, I think you have to, you have to be creative and kind of look outside the box and maybe even get out of your comfort zone and just kind of do things differently than you did in the past. For one trick ponies, let's just say it's like, hey, I'm a real estate agent and I'm just used to just getting deals handed to me and I don't really even have a built out business. Yeah, I'd be terrified if I was them. But if I'm a real estate agent and I have a built out team, I have a built out systems, maybe not even a team, I have a built out marketing approach. I have a back end to my real estate company mm-hmm. and I treat it like a business, not just like a hobby, I don't right. think they should be scared. I think they might have to pivot a little bit. I yeah. think anyone who has a real built out business and we're prepared for good and bad, I think they're in a good spot. I'm just yeah. using real estate agents in general. And it's not just real estate agents. It's not fair to segment that. It's mm-hmm. mortgage brokers. It's other hard money lenders. It's every business person in general. Yeah. If you think things were the way they were in the past, you're wrong because things are constantly changing. And I know so many folks now and pre-2007 that made a ton of money for previous years before that because the market just helped them. Right. And then as soon as the market crashed, they were completely out. And it's unfortunate. And I hate to say it, but sometimes you do it to yourself. Like when times are good, you still got to pretend times are tough, right? Right. Like now a lot of folks are being like, okay, I need to start a marketing campaign or now I got to go build this up. And I don't want to say it's too late because there's no better time to start than yesterday. But point being is, is 
like you got to be aware of what things are going on in the market and they're changing. And I agree, like 8% rates don't work great for what's going on in today's market. But that doesn't mean that you can't pivot or change or adapt. And some of these guys might be used to living on a million dollars a year in commission checks. And guess what? You might just have to bite the bullet and live on $100,000 a year or whatever you have right now. And I don't think you need to throw in the towel. And I don't like saying things like the strong will survive and things like that. But I think that there's still lots of opportunity and there's still going to always be opportunities. I mean, keep in mind how successful some of these real estate investors are that bought properties at the Mm -hmm. bottom of the crash. Like That's the way you got to look at it. You got to be optimistic. Like, hey, I hope the market goes down 20% because then I can get a 20% discount on this property. There's always good that comes from bad. And I think if you're a hustler and you're just not naive to the situation and you didn't kind of act like jerk over the last few years (laughs) and just make a lot of money and spend it all, I think you'll be fine. I think that's a very valuable insight there, right? Just because I think what happens is when the times are good, business is easy. And you forget to build the foundation of your business because the good times are eventually going to end. But that doesn't mean the bad times are going to persist either. Bad times are also going to end. That's the beauty of this whole thing. And I think I heard Gary Vee, I think it was Gary Vee that said something like this, and it's very relatable. It's like, hey, I hope the world completely implodes and everyone starts from scratch. Because if everybody starts at the same starting point, he was like, I know that I'm going to, I'll win, I'll be in a better place than I am now because we're all starting from an even playing field. Yeah. So I think that's a way to look at it. I also relate this to real estate investors and fix and flippers that would just buy properties off MLS. And that was their only marketing strategy. They did like a hundred deals over the last few years. And they'd come to me and they'd be like, Hey, how do you find deals? It's like, you did a hundred deals. What do you mean? It's like, well, we just go on MLS and we buy them. Yeah. It's like, well, historically just buying a property on MLS that has enough equity that you could fix and flip wasn't the thing. Like, The last few years, and that worked pre-2007, but that was really it. So everybody did that and they didn't have any foundation inside their business. And if that's the case and you're listening to this and that's you, that's okay. Learn from it and get going. Correct. 100% correct. (laughs) I think it's in the time of despair right now, which is uncertain time. I shouldn't say call it despair. The only thing to back on is your own skill sets and learning from other people who are able to pivot. And how are they pivoting? And learning from them instead of either shutting the business down. That's an easy thing to say. I'll let me go find a job because jobs are a little bit more predictable, although it's highly unpredictable, but that's <laughs> the fallacy that is predictable that somebody will tell me what to do nine to five. I'll do it. And I come back home and hopefully my life would be much more simpler, but it's not that. I think hopefully if you're listening to this podcast, you're not looking for a simpler life. You're looking for a rich life and how are yeah. you to find rich, right? A wealthy life. So one question there, Jason, is I know you raise capital from private investors, from retail investors, right? Yep. What's their sentiment? Because I know you believe in your own skill set and your abilities and your company's platform that you have created to add value on whatever capital you raise. So I'm pretty confident in that part. Has the confidence of your investors shaken up? And how are you talking to them about it? Sure. So I don't want to speak for all private capital investors, but I will speak from ours because it's a common thing. And Uh I mean, we haven't needed to raise capital in eight or 10 years. And this isn't because like, oh, hey, I started with money because we didn't. We started with nothing when we started this. But it's because we raised a lot of capital at the beginning mm-hmm. and the capital grows a lot quicker than one might think. We yeah. actually have more capital than we have deal flow. And that's yeah. been like that for a long period of time. So our capital investors have stuck with us. We've done really good deals with them and we act as partners. But 
if you're listening and you're trying to raise capital in general, just remember that capital raising does take time, right? It doesn't happen overnight. Someone that I invest in our deals with us aren't going to re- invest with you and vice versa, mm-hmm. right? It's tied to the operator and things like Definitely. that. But also you start raising capital from an individual investor and maybe they put up $100,000 on the first deal. And then the next deal, you know, that pays off, let's say seven or eight months. Then they want to put more money into the next deal, right? Yeah. And then they tell their friends and family. And then there's a magic thing called compound interest and rule of 72. And if they're getting a high rate of return, typically they're doubling their money every between five or 10 years. So that's why our capital investors have been around and have substantially grown over the years just because we've done good deals for them. And we, over time, that snowballs bigger than deal flow. But in general, like they trust us as an operator and they also are strong believers that they want to keep their cash in assets right now, in income producing assets. They want to keep their cash in real estate. They want to keep their cash in private notes. Obviously, there's a scare on the banks as we're recording this. So that's actually not even really part of it, but I think related to inflation and things like that, like it's important for your cash to be real assets that are growing and are spitting out cash flow. So I talk to other private lenders, even if they don't deploy capital through us. And I think they all want to be in these types of asset classes, especially right now. And I think they're all good. And I'll tell you an interesting story. So I think it was March, 2020, a few weeks after COVID hit, banks stopped lending completely. Institutional capital stopped lending completely. Everything was kind of on a hold. One of our capital investors reached out to us and was like, Hey, what's your thoughts? And we're like, What do you mean? He's like, Well, what's your thoughts? Like, should I pause? Like, should we not do any more deals? And it's like, Why? There's still a number that always makes sense on a deal. Always makes sense on a deal. He lent some money with us and he also did his own hard money deals. And I was like, Think about this. Let's say Bob Smith has a property under contract for a million dollars in Northwest DC in Georgetown, let's call it, which is a high-end area in DC. Mm -hmm. And he came to you and he said, hey, can you give me 500 grand on this deal? I'll put up 500 and you put 500. I was like, would you fund it? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. It'd be a no-brainer. Okay, then you're not sidelined. And what's the point of sidelining? Maybe if you would have given him 700 yesterday- That's the problem. Give him 500 a day. You can adjust whatever you want. Buying a property, buying a stock, buying a note, buying gold, buying everything. It's an asset and buying a business and you're underwriting individually and your underwriting algorithm changes day to day based on your knowledge, your experience, the market and things like that. We've done multiple loans in the same neighborhood, street, sometimes even the same house, but they're for different operators. There are different dates. Every single one was different. We didn't let them the same one every time. So point being is, I think if you're a savvy investor or private capital investor, you just need to determine what your comfort level is at any given time. And I think that's probably the best advice I can give to anyone who's trying to underwrite a business or something. And just because, hey, the industry norm is I'm going to lend 65%. You don't have to lend 65%. You lend whatever you want. You can lend 10%. And everyone can tell you you're never going to do deals. But if that's what you're comfortable with, you're willing to lend 10%. Or if you're willing to buy any property at such a low LTV from a seller, if that's your model, then stick to it. And it's a numbers game. Which is interesting, right? Because most people are investing because they don't have a thesis to invest. They just want to invest because their neighbor is investing, right? If you don't have a personal investment philosophy, I'm a firm believer, you need to be clear in your mind, what is your investment philosophy? And you can borrow somebody else's to begin with, that's completely fine, but eventually you got to make it your own, right? And to your point, if 65% LTV is not good enough for you, get 40. 
whatever or you, you want. want to be too aggressive get yeah. a 75 yeah. nobody's stopping you it's your own deals you're doing it you have to be yeah. accountable to your money and your investors money that's the only thing we're saying yeah and when you underwrite be careful in that to make sure that your thesis is based on good judgment too many folks kind of think about the private markets as wall street where it's like oh hey i'll just go buy something on the stock exchange or just give it to my financial advisors you're controlling your own money we saw this firsthand when we spoke at an equity trust conference years ago in Florida. And if you don't equity trust, they just do like self-directed mm -hmm. IRA retirement accounts, if you're listening. And I remember that there were so many capital investors down there and all of them had cash that they yeah. wanted to deploy. And they're like, yep, I lend money, I buy properties, but none of them knew what they were doing. They just thought that, <laughs> hey, I'm going to roll my money over from my Merrill Lynch account right. or roll it over from a brokerage account to a self-directed retirement yeah. account. And when it's self-directed, you can self-direct and control where you want to invest it in. And they just thought like, just because they had the money that now they have opportunities. Like right. you still have to go find opportunities. So, so many folks don't realize that, hey, just because the property's for sale and it's a distressed house, that doesn't mean it's a good deal. No, <laughs> it's just... it doesn't. It's a good deal at some number. <laughs> that number has to be negotiated, right? It's a good deal at some number. It's hard work. Like no one's saying that it's easy to do this. I mean, listen, if you have money, let's say, and you want to be an investor and you want like passive return, hey, I'm passive income, you're going to pay retail, which is what what is like 4% probably good mm -hmm. right now to get that. And if you want a higher rate of return, then you're going to have to be a little bit more active. You need to go right. find another operator or you need to go be involved to find other deals. I mean, you can make 100% on your money. You can make whatever you want on it, but it depends on what you put into it. Correct. There's a resource, right? Time, energy, money. One of the three things you're going to have to spend. If you're not willing to spend time, you're going to have to give somebody else. You have to join someone like you who is good at it and you don't mind finding the deals and putting the hard work and let's put an equity there. And then That's right. you will help them give a return. But of course, you're going to keep a part of the return. That's sort of your incentive to continue helping them grow their money. That's right. There's nothing wrong in that. I think it's just that when the challenge becomes is why are you making 2x, right? Well, yeah. why are you doing this? Well, you can do it yourself too. It's not rocket yeah. science. But you have no. to put time and energy, right? None of this is rocket science or brain surgery. I say that Never every is. <laughs> like, We're not going to the moon. We're basically trying to make money on our money. Yeah, I don't have an MBA or any high-level degree on any of this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you don't need that, right? That's the fallacy that you have to be super... I'm not saying you're not smart, but you're just more... You're applying common sense. You're seeing what works. And if it doesn't work, you're yeah. willing to change. And a little off topic, but... A lot of investors just kind of throw money at stuff or they just somewhat irresponsible about doing deals. And you just got to start slow and learn it. I call it like the education execution seesaw where you educate, then you execute. Then you learn more and then you do more. I love that. I'm going to steal that. Yeah, do it. Education versus execution. And yeah. it's like a seesaw and that's important. And listen, if you know everything and you never do a deal, come on. If you don't know anything and all you're doing is executing, you're going to get yourself in trouble and you're going to right. get other people in trouble. So you right. really got to go side right. by side. And I'll be the first one to say it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't, man. It doesn't. <laughs> but it's not that hard either, right? That's right. It's possible for all. So Jason, I, I want to respect for your time, man, here. We're almost at the top of the hour. So we're going to switch gears here. We're going to be jumping into the last two questions that we have. One is, of course, you've had an exciting journey. You've seen lots of ups and downs. If you were to go back to your 20-year-old self, what is the key insight you'll share with that person? So if I went back to 20... And I think if you are a 20-year-old, I think you got to be ambitious and motivated and really just willing to learn from people that are ahead of you. And don't think you know it all. 
because you don't, you don't know anything when you're 20 years old, nothing, or a lot less than you might think. And just kind of be naive and go and learn and earn along the way and execute. I remember we learned in our 20s and then we started earning in our 30s. And then in our 40s, we really took that earning capacity and turned it into asset creation and wealth and growth and things like that. So I just think it's like, be naive, be curious, figure out what direction you're going to go into. I equate kind of business and what type of business to start kind of like I equate to youth sports where you can be like the best player ever. But if you don't have heart and determination and a will, you're just not going to take it any further. So whatever business that you are creating, just make something that you're interested in and you're passionate about. Because if you're not, it's just going to kind of go away. And I've talked to a lot of very, very successful business owners before. And I'm like, listen, I know you're making a lot of money selling sunglasses, whatever, any business. Mm -hmm. But like, is that what you're really passionate about? Because if not, there's only so far you're going to go. Right. And I think that kind of relates to a lot of stuff. And nobody, unless you might think you know what you want when you were 20, Zuckerberg probably knew what he wanted when he was 20, but I certainly didn't. Yeah. Most people don't. So I was curious and ambitious. And I think just learn how to sell, learn how to market. I think those go a long way at an early age. I love it, Jason. And this is where we have to totally go seven and nine. That's really where my head is at. You can teach them to be an expert coder, which is fine. I'm not saying it's a bad skill, but if they don't know how to market, they don't know how to sell, they'll always be working with somebody else. I'm not the best hard money lender. You're not the best at what you do, but I'm probably better at marketing and selling my product than somebody else. There's always going to be the best person that you've never heard of. I think you stole (laughs) the words right out of my mouth. You have to be known and you have to be willing to work hard and you have to be able to talk to people. Communication is the primary skill. And if you don't have that, especially in the AI age, where two plus two equals four is not important anymore, right? All of that's going to go through chat GPT or Mm -hmm. some software like that. We have to add other value. What's your value? Yeah. And that's all stuff that all of us, even us old guys are learning and figuring out ways that we can implement them into our business. Correct. Correct. If you are a 20-year-old person listening right now, well, you are way ahead of us because you're digital natives. You know these technologies much better than John or I know, right? Yeah. Or somebody else, or Jason or I know, or anyone else in the category, right? So you definitely have an edge up. Let's figure out how to use that. Let's get motivated. Let's ask questions from people who are ahead of you, not because they're smarter, it's because they have a little bit more life experience. Doesn't mean they're smarter than you or not, but they've done a different thing. They've made their own mistakes. Let's try and figure out not to make the same mistakes. So Jason, last question, buddy. From the vibe I'm getting from you, I think you may have thought about this question a lot. Where should humanity migrate towards? Community. I think community solves everything in general. And that came to me during COVID, three years ago, when everyone's like, the world's exploding, the world's going away, there's a lot of crime. And I was like, I don't know if I'm buying that because I think community solves everything that mm-hmm. like there's always going to be a one bad apple right but right. like let's say you have a community of 10 people and one person is just toxic he or she starts i don't know tries to hurt somebody else in that community well mm-hmm. communities stick together that's what they do and they'll help each other out along the way so i think i feel like communities will solve everything and it doesn't matter if you're red or blue or anything else yeah. i think like being a part of your community and assisting I don't know how else to explain it besides that I think like community solves so much stuff 
and there's more good than bad. <laughs> I think there's more good than yeah. bad out there, even though bad is front lines and bad is news, bad is public. That's bad is, easy, right? Bad, 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 yeah, bad, easy. It's easy yeah, to identify bad. I remember my business partner Chris saying, like, related to news, be like, why watch the news? It's all bad news. Like, why don't they have a good news? Yeah. Like, if there's well, good news, gonna watch so, like, it. exactly. There's nothing <laughs> sexy about good news, but yeah. I believe that there's more good than bad. And I think good, even if it's not easier, can overcome. And I think we see that. And we've seen that been real prevalent over the last few years. But during bad times, you see good things. Yeah. Now, thank you for that answer. I know you're a firm believer of that because off the year, we were just talking about the communities you're trying to build through your masterminds and stuff. So I know you're a firm believer of building a community. So you're not just saying it. So thank you again, Jason, for this amazing, insightful conversation. I feel like we're just getting ready to scratch the surface. That's the problem with the podcasts. If you just get started, like, you know, we want to respect for everyone's time. And we want to also make sure that our listeners don't have to listen to us talking for like four hours, because I think I have a feeling you and I could go that far. So I really appreciate that. Jason, if somebody wants to reach out to you, either to learn more about what do you do or to discuss hard money lending with you, where can they find you, buddy? Sure. So I, just our website, hardmoneybankers.com or anything related to hard money bankers. That's our brand. That's our business. The last 16, 17 years, that's all I do. Hard money and the word private money overlap a lot. That's a different conversation, which one's which. Yeah. But hard money bankers on every social handle and on the web. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Jason, for this exciting conversation. Thank you. I certainly appreciate it. Thank you. If you got value from this episode, you might consider sharing this content with a friend. But most importantly, be sure to take action on what you've learned. One way you can take the next step is to connect directly with Socket on an investor call. That link is waiting for you in the show notes below. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Please consult your own advisors when making any investment decisions. Keep listening. We'll see you on the next episode.